Along with football, uh, I enjoy fall for a variety of reasons. The fall fashion, uh, the boots, yeah, scarves, sweaters, the nice weather, the leaves turning. Anybody else fall your favorite season? Yeah? Okay. You're with me. Midwest, I feel like Midwestern people, it's like, that's their season, right? Fall is their season. Um, but I have to admit, even though I love fall, I'm not a fan of the spookier part of the season. Like, I'm not really into horror movies. I'm not one for haunted corn mazes. I don't really do, like, the haunted house thing. I'm, like, a lightweight when it comes to horror. I can't handle, like, anything. Uh, and my husband doesn't, like, love this because he, he would love to do all of those things. And I, I refuse to do them with him. But that being said, I do know a few spooky stories, and one of those stories I want to share with you today. It's called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is a novella that was published in 1886 by a man named Robert Louis Stevenson, and it follows a doctor named Henry Jekyll who drinks a serum that turns him evil in the night. As the story progresses, we learn that Dr. Jekyll and his evil side, Mr. Hyde, begin to war with one another. Hyde begins to take over Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll begins to lose control over this alter ego personality of himself. This story has become a part of our English vernacular. Uh, it's actually expressed itself culturally and lots of fun different TVs and uh, TV shows and episodes. There's a Tom and Jerry episode entitled Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Mouse. I'll leave you to kind of make how that goes. Uh, there's a Scooby-Doo episode called Nowhere to Hide. Get it? Yeah, okay. Where one of the suspects is believed to be a descendant of Dr. Jekyll. Very interesting. Uh, Thelma, I'm sure, figured that one out. And then there's even a Looney Tunes episode entitled Dr. Jerkle's Hide, fun play on words, in which Sylvester the cat drinks a formula he thinks to be soda pop and ends up attacking and raging against his fellow Looney Tunes. The phrase Jekyll and Hyde in the English language has come to mean or represent a person of dual personality, someone who seems outwardly good but has a shockingly evil side to them. In today's society, I would argue that most of us, if not all of us, have a Jekyll and a Hyde side. The outwardly good, kind appearance that we have around most people and in most situations, and then the aggressive, short-tempered, outrage-prone side that comes out at family dinners and on social media. Many have coined this current cultural moment as the age of outrage. There are many reasons for this potential age of outrage, but most people agree that we can attribute them to three reasons specifically. The first is decline in Christian majority or normative Christian culture, so a shift in the culture in the United States. The second is a rise in the use of technology in social media. And the third is a polarization that's happened in the political sphere in the United States. This is from a book entitled Christians in the Age of Outrage by Ed Stetzer. According to a, a Pew Research Center article, most Christians who identified at one time as loosely Christian are becoming less so. 
More frequently, people, when asked to report their religion, are selecting none of the above rather than Christian. This statistic represents a growing change in our culture. 50 years ago, nay, even 30 years ago, most people identified as Christian, and Christian was what most people called mainstream. Regardless of people's behaviors, regardless of their actions, or maybe their beliefs, most individuals, when you pass them by on the street, would identify as a Christian. As we turn the page, though, on 2021, we're beginning to realize that long that this long mainstream culture that we have had as Christians is no longer existing. It's on the decline. And although statistics show us that committed Christians, as tracked by church attendance and adherence to spiritual disciplines, is not declining, those who have remained on the fringes of Christianity, or what many call Christers, those that only come on Christmas or Easter, are in fact declining. And thus, America's perceived identity as a Christian nation is beginning to crack. We are becoming the minority in culture. That being said, I am not advocating for a return to the good old days or even for us to continue to perpetuate this cultural identity. But rather, I am wanting us to see that we have a shift in culture happening. We actually see throughout scriptures and history, when the church becomes a minority or becomes persecuted, God shows up in a really incredible way, right? But we're also seeing in this current culture moment, as we're in the middle of this shift, that there's a little bit of disturbance. There's a crack. There's some frustrations. Some anger is surfacing. Of evangelicals with an opinion, 82% believe that since the 2016 presidential election, groups within the Christian church have become increasingly polarized on issues of politics. The 2016 election was a reminder that there are many Christians, whether they be nominal or not, who feel marginalized in this cultural moment of Christian decline. It was a reminder that Christianity can still be wielded as a cultural weapon to divide whether you find yourself on the the left or on the right. And it illustrated that many people are fighting for a seat, quite literally fighting tooth and nail for a seat at the proverbial cultural table for fear of missing out. And then there's the rise in technology and social media. I'm going to borrow an analogy for, from Ed Stetzer in his aforementioned book. He specifically talks about the Flint, Michigan crisis that happened in 2015. Actually, was in the car the other day, uh, and I was listening to NPR, and they still, they were talking about the Flint, Michigan crisis because it's having effects today. I don't know if you remember, but Flint, Michigan was in the news in 2015 because there were reports of lead contamination in the drinking water. The city of Flint, Michigan had issued caution for people to not drink the drinking water because it was leading to lead contamination and high levels of blood that caused kidney disease and brain um, injury or damage uh, to children and those that are elderly. Oddly enough, though, there was actually a time in which lead was not only perceived as a good thing, but as an amazing resource. It helped paint dry quicker on walls. 
It provided a really cost-efficient, easy material to use to actually provide equal access to drinking water for all. We even put into gasoline to improve car efficiency and power. That was a new one. I didn't know. Less than a century ago, lead was perceived as an incredible resource. And then we discovered all of the harmful things that it causes. Lead serves as a cautionary tale of the uncritical pursuit of progress. In the words of Ed Setzer, it is a warning that we need to understand the risks and threats associated with new habits and tools before we allow them unfettered access into our lives, our households, and our communities. I wonder that if in less than a century, people will look back on this cultural moment and say the same thing about our use of technology and social media. On average, Americans spend between five to six hours on their phone daily. Unfettered access. And here's what we know. Technology and social media have for many become the primary platform for which to display anger, frustration, and outrage. 73% of evangelicals and 63% of non-evangelicals agree that interactions on social media have increased the divisive political culture in America today. I think this is best illustrated by a somewhat fun but also infuriating example. Anybody remember, I'm really hearkening back to 2015 here. Apparently that was a great year. Uh, remember 2015 Red Cup, Starbucks Red Cup controversy? Anybody remember this? Okay, Starbucks Red Cup controversy in 2015 to refresh some of your memory. Okay, Joshua Furstein posted a video on social media entitled, and I quote, Starbucks removed Christmas from their cups because they hate Jesus, end quote. I almost like had to look that up and verify that a few times because I'm like, that cannot be right. No, that was the title of the video. As you can imagine, both Christians and non-Christians alike took to social media outraged. You could see it in the comments. You could see it in shares of the video. You even heard it in interpersonal conversations that you had. I remember people bringing up the red cup controversy as I was having conversations with people. I even knew people that boycotted Starbucks stores because of this red cup controversy. Here's the deal. As later reported though, and as stated in a 2016 Vox article, uh, by Alex Abed Santos, first team was perpetuating blatant untruths. In the entire history of Starbucks Red Cups, dating back to 1997, when the first one was released, to the winter of 2015, Christmas was never mentioned once on any Starbucks cup. Ever. Ever. Wasn't there. Didn't exist. And yet... Both Christians and non-Christians alike took to social media so angry, perpetuating this age of outrage over a controversy that was never a controversy to begin with. Is there any doubt that we live in an age of outrage? The question that we have to ask ourselves now is, as Jesus followers, is how do we live as Jesus would have lived in this cultural moment. As we see in our passage of scripture today, Jesus has a lot to say on anger, 
But before I get there, I want to kind of recap where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for the last month now. We're going to be here for a long time, so get comfortable. Uh, But the Sermon on the Mount was specifically given to a group of Jesus' dedicated followers. It's the longest recorded sermon that we actually have of Jesus's in the Bible. And it specifically helps us know what it looks like to live in the life of Jesus, to live in the kingdom of Jesus. Throughout this series, we've asked you to keep three things in mind, and I'm going to briefly go over them. The first is this. The Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated speech. Rather, it's an exemplification or personification of Jesus's life. This is to say Jesus gave this sermon and said, here's how I'm going to live, and then did it. The second is this. The whole sermon is Christ describing what life in the kingdom and allegiance to him looks like in our everyday life. That is to say for you more practical people, if you're like, yes, I want to align myself to Jesus. I want to be part of this kingdom. Jesus actually shows us what that looks like. He gives us guidelines. He gives us some rules. He gives some encouragement to us as to what it looks like to live in the life of the kingdom. And number three, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is a practice of imagination. That is to say, the things that Jesus instructs his first century disciples to do, we have to use some imagination as we adapt them to our 21st century context. How many know a lot has changed, right? Last week, Alex Alex specifically preached on Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and we learned that Jesus has come not to abolish the law or the Old Testament, but rather to fulfill it. That is to say that Jesus has come not to cancel or correct the Old Testament, but to amplify it, to deepen it, to even transcend it. Jesus has been promoted to the job title of authorized scripture interpreter. What a title. It's a good title. Therefore, as we move into Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, we see what biblical scholars call six antitheses, okay? This is what I mean by antithesis here. We see Jesus give six statements that say this, you have heard it said, but I say. He has six of these in the following passages. Today, we're going to focus on the first one. But before I do that, to borrow from biblical scholar Scott McKnight, each of these antithetical statements Jesus does the following things in them. They have the following characteristics. First, he quotes from the Old Testament, his Bible. So we actually see him doing what he described he was going to do in verses 17 through 20, fulfill the law. We see him demonstrating that for us. He first quotes from the Old Testament, his Bible. He then interprets, extends, or illuminates that quotation and at times opposes what the Jews previously thought about that quote or how they previously interpreted it. Then he probes behind the original scripture into God's mind and his heart. And finally, he reveals the intent of the scripture and how we are to apply it to our everyday life, how we're supposed to live into accordance with that. So we find ourselves at the first of these antithetical statements on anger. So we pick up in verse 21, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. It says, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The phrase those of old here is specifically referring to the Israelites who received the 10 commandments from Moses. So the 
physical people that were there when Moses gave those 10 commandments. That's what it's referring to. And that was carried down throughout the generations and written in this book we call Exodus. So Jesus is specifically referencing Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, when he says, do not murder. He's referencing the Old Testament, his Bible. So if you see the first half of that antithetical statement right here, and then he goes on to say, Continuing in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Here we see Jesus as the authorized scripture interpreter. He's fully living out his job title. Extend the commandment from do not murder to do not be angry with a brother or a sister in Christ. Notice he's not relaxing the commandment. He's not replacing the law. He's not saying it's okay to murder, but don't be angry. No, that's not what he's saying. He's showing us that the law, do not murder, extends much farther than we thought it originally did. It's as if Jesus is asking us to ponder the question, what is the general desire behind the action of murder? Anger. Jesus is dismantling the ethical codes of culture that say anger is not as bad as murder and instead is saying in my kingdom, in Jesus's kingdom, anger is just as bad as murder. He goes on to say, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I want to take a moment to define what Jesus means by anger here, because some of you are listening to this and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to hell because I yelled at my dog this morning for peeing on the rug. (laughs) No, uh, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Let me reassure you, and scholars are pretty unanimous on this point, that Jesus is not referring to petty or trivial disagreements. He isn't referring to large social injustices, because those we should be angry about, and Jesus was actually very angry about many of those in the Bible. He's also not saying the emotion of anger itself is inherently evil or wrong. Rather, Jesus is confronting our decision to be angry people or to harbor anger towards a brother or sister in Christ or towards another person. The word anger here is referring specifically to fits of madness, remaining angry, nursing a grudge, resentment, or harboring contempt towards another human being or image bearer of Jesus Christ himself. In the words of David Bruner, I love this, the anger Jesus is referencing here is the anger of the man who nurses his wrath to keep it warm. Jesus's sentiment about this idea of anger is summed up really word. Actually, the same Greek word is used here in this different verse. It's used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through 27, where Paul says, be angry. He doesn't say do not be angry. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This shows us that there are different types of anger. Okay. So Jesus here is not referring to the emotion of anger. He's not referring to the little disagreements. He's not referring to the large social injustices. He's specifically referring to contempt against a brother or sister. And with that in mind, Jesus takes this kind of anger very seriously. 
So seriously, he says it can lead you to a life apart from him or a life that can only be described as hell on earth. Here's the deal. We do Jesus a disservice here if we cancel out the words judgment and what can be interpreted via the Greek word, excuse me, to hell on earth. So that word is hell on earth is what that essentially means. So we do Jesus a disservice if we placate that part of the, a part of the verse or we cut those portions out. And here's why. Biblical scholar David Pruner puts it this way. Behind Jesus's words here, we learn that there is some kind of awful judgment for people who without repentance, key words there, who without repentance hurt other people. God's love would not be love if it did not work to remove all that ungraciously hurts from our lives. What parent doesn't confront the school principal about a bully terrorizing a child? To love a child is to judge the unrepentant bully. Jesus goes on to say in verses 23 through 24, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The religious gatherings in Jesus' day uh, would have been either at the synagogue or the temple. And although there were lots of local synagogues in all the different towns, there was only one temple. That temple was in Jerusalem, and it's where all the Jewish people went to go give their sacrifice, or to what we understand today as confession or admitting where you've fallen short. Jesus gives this sermon, he's giving the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee, which is approximately 80 miles away from Jerusalem. It was not uncommon for the Jewish people to have to make a long pilgrimage or a long trek, long distance to get to the temple to give their sacrifice. Therefore, Jesus here is not saying, go to the temple, you realize you've angered someone, go back immediately, go walk down the block, Go get in your SUV, drive your 30-minute commute home, go apologize to your brother and come back. No, he's saying it would be better for you to make the 300-plus mile journey there to Jerusalem, back to your hometown, back to Jerusalem again, and back to your hometown, than come and give a sacrifice unreconciled to your brother and sister in Christ. Wow. Jesus takes reconciliation very seriously. The act of sacrifice or worship is not nearly as important as the spirit in which it's done. Verses 23 and 24 also show us that although Jesus views anger as wrong, this type of anger that we've been talking about, anger also happens, right? Or else he wouldn't have given us a provision to fix it. Anger happens, So Jesus' command is not about keeping anger from happening, but rather what we do immediately after anger happens. Therefore, Jesus' command is to not harbor resentment against another. That command shouldn't drive us only to despair, but it should drive us to a repentance or a rethinking. It should drive us to action, We must understand that in this life, we will consistently break God's commands. But it's also important to understand that we can keep 
God's commands, at least retroactively, by immediately seeking reconciliation. He goes on to say in verse 25, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here we see Jesus move from an example of anger between Christian and Christian or brother and sister or brother and brother or sister and sister to Christian and outsider. Jesus's language shifts from that brother language to your accuser or your opponent or your adversary. That is to say, it's not enough to demonstrate reconciliation with people within the church or with people whom you love and respect. We must extend reconciliation to all, especially our adversary and our opponent. My question to you today is this, is there someone, whether they be a brother or sister, or maybe even an adversary or an opponent, who you're holding deep resentment for, for whom you need to seek reconciliation with? Worship team, if you want to go ahead and come up. Um, As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about how the Sermon on the Mount, the application of it, requires imagination, right? As to say, how do these first century commands of do not be angry, do not hold resentment against your brother, how do these translate to our 21st century today? Jesus would have been speaking to disciples who lived in probably pretty small towns, like average of 50 max. So you can imagine, it was probably pretty easy to identify who you were angry with, right? And who you had angered. There was no social media. There was no email communication. You didn't really live apart from your family because the only mode of transportation was walking. Mail was extraordinarily expensive. You actually had to send a physical messenger to take your letter to the person that it needed to be taken to. It was really easy to identify who you were angry with and who you needed to be reconciled with. But in today's society, where globalization has made our social circles astronomically large, and where potentially we are very distant from the people who we may have in our social circle or call close, it feels really difficult to identify that sometimes, to identify who we have angered or who we're angry with or who we need to reconcile. To reference my introduction, it's really hard to know how to exemplify Jesus to follow his command in an age that's called the age of outrage. In Stetzer's book that I mentioned before, he actually defines outrage as outrage is motivated by a desire to punish or destroy rather than reconcile and refine. This 21st century definition of outrage, I think very well encapsulates Jesus's understanding of anger, of this resentment that we feel towards others. Setzer specifically outlines six characteristics that he thinks encompass this idea of outrage, as he can see based on examples in our society. And it's through these six characteristics that I think we can determine when our anger has moved from just a simple disagreement or a momentary emotion to full-on resentment and outrage. 
So I'm going to give these six. And as I do, I want you to be thinking through, ah, yes, that one. I've done that. Okay. Here are the six. First is this. Outreach is disproportionate. It quickly snowballs. The intensity toward the person doesn't match the object or the way in which the other initially responded. Starbucks red cup analogy, right? Number two, outrage is selfish. We often vent our anger or rage onto another person because if we're being honest, it just feels good. Or at least it does momentarily, right? It thinks words like that'll show them or stick it to the man. We belittle and demean others to mask our own fears and insecurities. Number two, outrage, or excuse me, number three, outrage is self, or excuse me, tribalistic. I'm getting these right. It's tribalistic. It is centered in the language of us versus them. Tribalism moves beyond healthy feelings of belonging to a team to a system that's centered on in, out, victor versus opponent. We are not able to take criticism, not only for ourselves, but our own team either. Outrage is visceral. That is to say, it's centered in the gut. We abandon thinking critically about context and we disregard the adage that says, I'm gonna put myself in somebody else's shoes. We lash out instead of taking the time to reflect and develop an actually critical and thoughtful response. Outrage is domineering. Number five, it aims to shut down, silence, bully, or shame someone into submission. It isn't interested in truth. It's not interested in nuance, but rather it lives in black and white binary worlds of good, evil, right, wrong. We begin to use hyperbole, profanity, name-calling as tools of quote-unquote justice. And number six, outrage is dishonest. It leads us to make untrue statements or generalizations about opponents to win a rhetorical point. All of a sudden, all those that voted for a Democratic candidate become baby killers. All those that voted for a conservative candidate become immigrant haters. We can know that our anger toward another person has gone beyond just the momentary emotion or the disagreement to full on outrage when it becomes disproportionate, selfish, tribalistic, visceral, domineering, and or dishonest. My challenge to you today is this. How have you participated in this age of outrage? Because we all have, let's be honest, one time or another. What characteristic of anger, of outrage, have you perpetrated towards a fellow image bearer? Somebody designed in the likeness of Christ himself. Who do you need to reconcile with? as a follower of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Community Podcast. 
find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.